Well, welcome, uh, everyone. Good to see y'all. I want to invite you to turn to Revelation 13, please. I love welcoming new members and such a joyous occasion, isn't it? And uh, it's for some, you know, it's not just the fact that it's exciting because they, they joined our church, but for, for some it represents uh, a real milestone in their own walk with the Lord, that joining themselves to a local body is reflective of something that God has done in their heart and open their eyes to see the importance of the body of Christ and the local church. And, and it's a significant step forward in their own walk with the Lord. So um, it's right to acknowledge that and to be excited about that. And uh, just, so, just so cool. So um, as you turn into Revelation 13, um, and there are some notes. I don't know if um, y'all got notes yet, but we have some notes going around. There'll be more in the back if you still need some. Um, last week in chapter 12, uh, we saw a depiction of this battle between a dragon, who is Satan, and a woman, who is representative of God's people, and the male child that she gave birth to, representative of Jesus. And um, all of this points back to Genesis 3 and the first deception. And after that happened, the fall of man, we're told that this ancient serpent will continue to assault um, all of humanity and all of creation but that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We get that back in Genesis 3. We see that come in full circle there towards the end of chapter 12. And here in chapter 13, the dragon sends these two beasts. And uh, we'll be looking at the first one today in verses 1 through 10. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 10 together. Um, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this passage and that you would create endurance in our hearts and faith in our hearts that looks to you despite growing, increasing, worsening deception that is already happening around us and that will only get worse as time goes on. We need this endurance. We need this faith. So create this in us. Cultivate this in our hearts through this passage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
You know, sometimes I think when we read through the book of Revelation through our modern lens, um, we can totally see these images being recreated in CGI in some major cinematic motion production, motion picture production. And we, we, it's easy to imagine what some of this might look like. And it, movies really are a powerful art form um, that have expanded the cultural imagination, hasn't it? I mean, people have always been captured by, by visual stimulation, but I think even more so nowadays because we can create almost anything digitally and put it before our eyes in, in entertainment. And so it's, it's broadened the cultural imagination. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, we have to be careful not to get caught up in these visual details and images um, and fail to see the meaning behind it. So Revelation is not God capturing some video of the future and sending it back in time to John on the island of Patmos and uh, projecting it onto the side of a mountain and he's seeing footage of the future roll in front of his eyes. That's not what the, Revelation, what, what the book of Revelation is about. It's not a video of the future. It's more like a, a piece of artwork where all of the details symbolize and point to some deeper meaning. And the Bible is always giving us reality as God sees it. And that's exactly what we need. It, it's not just, um, you know, I think of the, the back to the future where he goes to the future, he gets the sports almanac and has plans to come back and place bets based on a future sports almanac. That's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is trying to orient us to reality as God sees it. And don't we need that? We, how do we make sense of the world around us? How do we make sense of the evil of school shootings or cancer or war? We are sinful and creation is groaning. And Satan, who is the enemy of our soul, is exploiting those two realities in an effort to overthrow the rule and reign of Christ. That's what it's all about. But our only hope, the only hope of all of humanity in life and death is the rule and reign of Christ, is the very thing that Satan is seeking to overthrow by exploiting our sinfulness and the groaning of creation. He's working through those two tools to overthrow the rule and reign of Christ. But it is, the reason he's doing that is because the rule and reign of Christ is precisely what we need. But we fail to see that, don't we? We can so often turn to other things, to so many other things, to fix our problems and heal our hurts and pains. But Jesus is our only hope. I mean, think about it. Why does society so often look to the government after a mass shooting or something like that? As Christians, we certainly believe that God gives the gift of government to restrain evil. And it should do what it can to restrain evil. Now, even that idea assumes it knows what evil is, which is a fading reality, unfortunately. But we also recognize that government will never eradicate evil. Restrain evil, yes, but it will never eradicate evil because evil is rooted deep in the human heart. And people are confused because they don't believe this. Many people believe in just the general good of humanity and that at base level, people are good. Well, if you believe that, then it makes sense to expect people to solve the problems that people created. But history has shown time and time again, and the Bible affirms, that we cannot get ourselves out of the mess that we got ourselves into. We, we can't. 
We need outside intervention. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We need someone or something bigger and stronger and more powerful than us that can overcome and conquer the wickedness that's inside of us. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our blind eyes to the wonderful reality that this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. And so this passage is going to show us that this enemy is powerful and deceptive. And that as time goes on, um, that deception will only get worse. And it will even result in the persecution of God's people. But, this is a good part, and I'm looking forward to point three. Because the lamb that was slain has triumphed over the enemy at the cross, we can endure to the end, no matter what we face. And so, the main point for this passage, is, I believe, is God calls us to faith and endurance. That's right in verse 10. For a growing deception. So for the Christian, this is a call to look to Jesus. To not be deceived by the swirling deceptions that are around us all the time and that are getting worse. Pastorally speaking, it means we can endure to the end and keep believing in Jesus when we recognize a few things. At least three things from this passage. These three things, I believe, will help us endure to the end. And keep believing in Jesus despite a growing deception all around us. So point number one. We see that a powerful beast will bring mass deception to the already deceived. We see this in verses one through four. Um, as soon as we start talking about this beast in Revelation, of course, you're probably wondering who the beast is. Is it a person? Is it an idea? Is the beast someone or something that happened in the past? Or is it something or something that we should expect to show up in the future? These are all very valid questions, and great theologians are divided over how to answer them. But a way to answer these questions is for us to observe what's being painted in the apocalyptic picture that's given to us. What is being painted here? So look at verse 1. The beast rises out of the sea. In the Bible, the sea is the picture of chaos and fear and disorder. This beast is rising up out of that and is going to unite the world under himself. He's described with, with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. And that description, along with the mention of a leper and a bear and a lion, would have reminded the original readers and us, because we went through the book of Daniel, of Daniel chapter 7. This is the beast that was prophesied about there. This beast gets his power and throne and authority directly from the dragon, Satan himself, chapter 12. And one of his heads, one of the seven heads, seems to have a mortal wound, but the wound was healed. And apparently, people were crazy impressed at the fact that this wound was healed because they began to follow him. They even began to worship the dragon and the beast. If, and you see that in verse 4. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. So just look at this picture for a second. And you just have to think, wait a second. Jesus was killed and was resurrected. There was a mortal wound that was reversed in the resurrection. And the gospel was proclaimed throughout the whole world. And as people got saved, they gave Jesus their allegiance. And they began to worship Jesus. So it's kind of implying that this beast is the ultimate God replacement. It's the replacement of what Jesus has come to do. We come to the second half of verse 4 and we, we read the lyrics of the worship song that's being sung to the beast. 
Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Well, that sounds awfully like a twisted version of what can be said about Yahweh alone in Exodus 15, 11, and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Well, that song is not being applied to God, the creator of the universe. It's being applied to the dragon and the beast. Because the people have come to see him as the ultimate replacement for God. And they're attributing their worship to him in a mockery form of what, giving him what only belongs to God alone. Notice there's this powerful deception that's taken place and <clears throat> it seems to be global. Many people believe that this beast is the Antichrist described in 1 John 2.18 who is also the man of lawlessness described in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I do think the beast is the Antichrist, is the man of lawlessness. I do think those are all interchangeable. Um, and while there are good reasons to think that the beast is a, a future coming Antichrist who will emerge right before the second coming of Christ and unite the world under himself in opposition to God, an individual who arrives on the scene, there are good reasons to think that. There are also good reasons to believe that the beast slash antichrist slash man of lawlessness represents several of history's most powerful rulers who have done just that, who have united people under themselves in opposition to God's people. And that right before the second coming of Christ, there might be one last ultra-powerful expression of that beast as well. Some believe it to be a reference to Nero, who um, before, so before John wrote the book of Revelation, Nero committed suicide. And at the time, there was a legend going around that he may have faked his death and that he would be uh, coming back um, and will be taken over and ruling the world and, and will emerge as a resurrected ruler. Um, so with that backdrop, John is, is seeing this, this picture and so some have believed it to be Nero. Nero. Um, I personally believe there are compelling reasons to think that the beast or antichrist or man of lawlessness are all words and concepts that point to the spirit of the age at work in people and especially those people who are in positions of power and authority. So, I, you know, and Christians and theologians can, can really differ on this and that's okay because it's not super clear and there are good reasons to, to see it different ways. Um, but I don't think the, the beast necessarily has to be a single individual that we're waiting on to show up on the world scene. When you really think about it, I, I think this beast that we're reading about, he crawled up out of the sea the moment Jesus stepped out of the tomb. He's been assaulting God's church and opposing God's rule this entire time and will continue to do so until Jesus returns. And the point that this passage is making is that it's going to get especially more intense toward the end. It is going to get more intense. So we, we have that in this passage. We have that in 2 Thessalonians 2. So Paul can talk about the man of lawlessness who uh, is yet to be revealed, Paul says. So there, there is a future sense in which this beast will emerge and, and his influence and power will be more extensive and more deceptive and more persuasive and that there's a growing deception that will happen just before Christ returns in the second coming. But my point is, I'm not waiting for this beast to show up. I believe in, in a real sense, the beast is here now. He's winning friends and influencing people in education and politics and art and media and finance and everywhere else that he can. Now, I'm not saying the beast 
is Satan, because we do have the distinction between the dragon and, and the beast in the imagery here, but he has seven heads. So I think the point there is that the beast of Revelation can be any number of things, from powerful people to oppressive governments to poisonous moral and political ideology and everything in between. The point is this. This stuff is real, regardless of whether you think it's a person that's coming or a person who came or an idea or a concept or something in between. This stuff is real. This beast is powerful. This beast is deceptive because he is doing Satan's bidding. And the fact that he can persuade the world to not only follow him, but to worship him reflects just how powerful the deception is. I mean, in these verses, in verses 1 to 4, you realize he's faking miracles. Okay, so he had a mortal wound, but the, the wound got healed. People are worshiping him. There's counterfeit stuff going on. There's God replacement stuff that he's doing that people are just chasing after. How is this even possible? How is this happening? I mean, if he's supposedly offering to do what only God can do, and what only God can be, then why are people settling for this substitute rather than going to the real thing? Well, the answer comes back to the deceptive nature of sin, doesn't it? Sin is so deceptive. It is so powerful. It, it reaches its tentacles around our, around our hearts and minds from early on to blind us, to deceive us. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's a blindness that comes that the enemy brings to deceive people. To where they're following him, they're worshiping him, they don't even realize that they're being deceived. And the enemy is keeping them in the dark to not let them realize that they're being deceived. And thus, we see the thing that Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, truth about God, for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth of God, about God, for a lie. And, you know, just think about our own hearts. Our hearts will regularly look to make this exchange too. Right? I mean, before we wonder, how is it possible that so many people across the planet will just blindly worship their beast, this beast and give him their allegiance? Do they not see that he's evil and he's, he's horrible and he's deceptive? And how are they all going after that? Well, before we think that, let's just think about our own hearts. How often do our own hearts go after God replacements? Even as believers, we can settle for substitutes for God. We can settle for our own ways. We can stand in the path of self-sufficiency rather than recognizing that we need intervention from the outside. We need rescue outside of ourselves that we can't produce for ourselves. We are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. No one here is self-made. We need a savior. 
And yet we can settle for this thought that I can fix my own problems. I can heal my own pains. I can assuage my own fears. I can cure my own illnesses. I can do everything myself. I'm self-sufficient. And in so doing, we're, we're exchanging truth about God for a lie that we can get on in life on our own when we can't. This, is, this God replacement idea can show up in our lives in a variety of ways. It may be believing in the security of being in control. If I can just be in control more, well then things won't spin out of control and my life will be protected and everything will be better. Because after all, when I surrender control to God, then that, that feels like I'm not in control and me not being in control is, is scary. And so the way I protect myself is I seize control, not give it over to God. But what's underneath that assumption? That I can do it better than God can. God, let me take the steering wheel here because I'm not sure if you're going to drive us off a cliff. But I'll take it and, and things will be better. See, there's a, there's a deceptiveness to self-sufficiency. And it promises this security of being in control. That's a God replacement. The God replacement of the security of being in control. The God replacement of the pleasure that lust can bring, for example. We can believe that there is a pleasure that God is holding out uh, with me on. That there's, there's something that God is keeping from me that is good for me. And then if I go outside of God's design for sexual fulfillment, well now I'll experience a pleasure that is far better than God's design. And so we believe this every time that we indulge in lust. Every time that we yield to those sorts of temptations. They're God replacements. We exchange the truth about God and his design for us in sexuality and fulfillment and marriage. We exchange that truth for the lie that there's something better outside of God's design. What about the supposed peace from having more money or more and better stuff and possessions. And the thought that if, well, if we just had a little bit more, or if I just had a little bit better, well then there would be peace, there would be security. That's a God replacement. Thinking that things and possessions and money and wealth and prosperity can bring me what only God can bring me. Or the, here's another God replacement. I was talking with Danette about this this week and just thinking through. Sometimes there is a promised healing that somebody is after through revenge and payback for wrongs done to them. They think that I was wrong, I was, I, was a, I was victimized in some sort of way, and you know what, God is near to the brokenhearted, and he wants to bring healing to the deepest parts of our pains and hurts, no doubt about that, but when we take it upon ourselves to exact revenge and payback and execute justice, we're putting ourselves in the place of God rather than trusting God to be our judge. And why would we do that? Because we think that healing will come by transferring the victimhood to this other person and making them pay for it. See, it's a God replacement. It's, it's, a, it's a twisted view of justice and healing than what the Bible gives us, which the Bible invites us to bring all of our deepest pains and hurts to Jesus, to lay them at his feet, and to let the great physician bring the deepest healing to our broken hearts. That's what... He calls us to. See, at essence, we're talking about the sin of self-sufficiency. My control, my pleasure, my achievements, my healing, my happiness. I don't need God. Oh, I may need someone else to help me get all those things. But ultimately, my fulfillment will come not from outside myself, but from within myself. It's a God replacement. It's, that's the work of the enemy. That's the kind of deception that is going to just 
continue to proliferate as time goes on. We live our lives looking for and doing things that only God can do for us. And this certainly defines the experience of every unbeliever, but it can most certainly show up in a Christian's life as well, can it? These verses are God's way of warning us that, yes, it's going to get worse in the world around us, and it's going to get much more extensive and obvious than it already is. But we know from verse 10 that the reason we're being told all of that is the Holy Spirit wants to call us to faith and endurance. In other words, we should work hard as believers to detect the ways that we are being deceived by the enemy. What are the ways that I am exchanging the truth of God for a lie? And we shouldn't have to look too hard because after all, every single sin we commit is exchanging some truth about God for a lie every time. That is the deception. And it's what this beast does best. And it's clear from this passage that that is going to increase, that there is a growing deception. And so it's important for us to, to recognize off the bat that this powerful beast will bring mass deception to the already deceived. And we are not exempt from that. We can be taken captive as well. So point number two, the beast will appear even to conquer the church. The beast will appear to conquer the church. We see this in verses five through seven. So now we go from not just deception, but in verses five through seven, there is a direct attack on the people of God. Now we can't skip over this key phrase. Look at verse five. There's a number of key phrases And I'm going to read it in a way that brings it out for you. (laughs) Um, In verse 5, we see, he was allowed to exercise authority. It was allowed to exercise authority. I I think people get so hung up on the 42 months in that verse, when really what they should be hung up on is the fact that the beast was allowed by God, presumably, to exercise authority in a way that physically harmed the people of God. That should be pretty perplexing to us. We should stop and say, what does that mean? What theological implications does that have? You know, that's a bigger issue, I think, than what's the meaning of the 42 months. Now, we'll get to that. I'm not sidestepping that hard question. We'll get to that. But it it goes on. Verse 7 says the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Again, like, what? (laughs) What is going on? Verse 8, it was given authority over the nations. But just like in the book of Job, Satan, and here it is, his beast, is only allowed to do what God permits. That's what we get from those phrases. John could have written that the, that the beast simply did these things, but he points out over and over again in the language here that God's sovereignly in control over this beast activity. It's the restraint of God on evil and on Satan and on this beast. The irony is that the beast's apparent success is actually a display not of his own power, but of God's power over him to restrain him and to only do what God allows him to do. So do we see this? If that's what is happening here in this language, where where would we see that elsewhere in the Bible? Well, we see it in the time of Jesus' own crucifixion don't we? When Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. So it's clear from verse 3 that Satan's activity through this beast is real, it is powerful, but it's clear from verses 5 through 7 that it is under restraint. 
He is, to borrow a Revelation 20 language, bound in his, what he can do to God's people and to God's church. So if this beast is active now and the church is being persecuted now and he is real and he is powerful and he is deceptive now, then it stands to reason that Satan must be bound now as well because the language of permit, allow just underscores that idea. God is in control of this beast. It's not a free-for-all where he can do whatever he wants. And that reality should produce faith and endurance in us as believers, shouldn't it? It, God's not rolling the dice to see what Satan's going to do next. God is in control over the evil activity of those in the world who seek to sabotage God's people and persecute God's people and drive them underground and silence them and stamp them out completely. No, God is in control permitting and allowing this beast to do only what God says, uh, allowing him to go only as far as God determines. So, what about the 42 months? Well, again, come in, if, if you weren't able to come to our eschatology weekender, uh, I encourage you to check those out. Those are online. So here's where some of those categories, I think, will, will help and understand just different approaches to reading the book of Revelation. Those who believe in a literal seven-year tribulation that will happen just before the return of Christ um, immediately recognize that 42 months is three and a half years. So a seven-year tribulation, 42 months is three and a half years. Um, other people see the church age as the, the whole church age is the tribulation. We, we have been living in the tribulation since Jesus ascended. And uh, the, the first martyr of Stephen was the beginning of the tribulation. And that there may be a, certainly an intensification of tribulation towards the end. But is tribulation just a seven-year defined period? Is it the entire period? Is it both? So people have different views of that. Um, those who see the literal seven-year tribulation just before the return of Christ locate um, the beast persecution of God's people in the second half of the literal seven year because it's 42 months, which is half of seven years, three and a half years. Um, but there's more here than that. I don't think three and a half years is just a random number. I don't think it's merely a symbolic number either. It is half of seven. <laughs> Basic math. Um, but what is seven? Seven is the picture of wholeness. It's the picture of perfection, completeness, right? So numbers in apocalyptic writings typically have spiritual significance that we don't want to miss. So I think it could be a literal number of years. Sure, maybe. But I think it could also just be making the point that the seemingly perfect and complete rule of the beast, portrayed in verses 1 through 4, everybody's worshiping him. It's this, a picture of wholeness, seven, perfection, completion. He's dominated the world. They're all gathering around his throne and worshiping him. That that apparent perfect and complete rule of the beast will be broken in half, three and a half years. It will suddenly be broken. It will not last to completion. In other words, his days are numbered. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a defined uh, set of days on a calendar. I, I think if we think of the numbers with spiritual significance, the point is it, it seems like it's, it would be seven because everything's perfect, but God breaks it in half. His days are numbered. He will be defeated. This beast was allowed to make war on the saints, it says, and even to conquer them. But as we keep reading, we know that this beast does not get the last word. Of course, as we go on through the book of Revelation, we'll see all the ways that the beast does not get the last word. So this beast will go from deceiving the nations, mass deception, to 
attacking God's people, even appearing to conquer the church, but all the while remaining under God's sovereign control, only doing what God permits him to do. Point three, and the the result is the church will suffer, but the lamb will triumph. We see this in verses eight through 10, and it's kind of in a in the, the negative form, but we'll see here in verse 8, the people who worship the beast are described as those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What a long, great phrase, but a lot there. Which means that there's a group of people who are not worshiping the beast, and those are people whose names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. We saw this phrase earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, verse 5, where it describes God's people with the promise that their name will never be blotted out of the book of life. Such a wonderful assurance. And what's written in that book, what's written in this book of life was written, it tells us here, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation. Just think of that. You, You do realize that God, when God created the cosmos, he created Not only matter, but he created time. So God existed before time was linear. He existed outside of time and he created time. He created the universe. He created all that is seen and real and physical and is out there. There was not anything that exists that God did not create. And yet before the foundation of all, before all of that was made, before Genesis 1-1 happened, We see here that names were written in a book of life. Does the New Testament affirm this and teach this elsewhere? Well, think about Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, here's this phrase again, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Just think of your own life. How did we come to be chosen this, this should cause us to just stop and marvel. If you have faith in Jesus and he's changed your life and he's made you a Christian, you should be able to step back and say, I don't know how that, is, that came to be. Why? Why would God choose me? See, the, the doctrine of divine election should humble us. It, it pulls the rug out from under us when it comes to self-sufficiency that we were talking about a minute ago. We, we have no grounds to stand on our own achievements and our own sufficiency to look within and hoping to find ourselves and define ourselves and find meaning within ourselves. No, divine election reminds us that apart from God's sovereign choice of us before the foundation of the world, our destination was hell and separation from God for all eternity under his wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins, to win sinners to himself and join them to his family. That should produce humility and gratitude in us and it should also compel us to love others. Knowing that if that's how it works, God's grace can break in on anybody. It doesn't matter how bad they are, how evil they are, how religious they are. God sets his love on someone, ain't no beast stopping that. That person is coming to Jesus. That's our hope, isn't it? We don't share the gospel with the most likely candidates to get saved. We share the gospel with anyone because we don't know who God's going to save. And we know that when God decides to do it, he's going to do it. And I want to be on the front row when it happens. I want to see it happen. So we proclaim the gospel and then we watch and wait for God to do what only God can do. 
The doctrine of divine election should never cause us to sit back and say, well, God's going to save whoever he wants to. It should compel us to say, I want to get on the front row. I want to see it happen. I want to see God rescue someone and turn them in their tracks and bring them to Jesus. Oh God, may we see that. May the doctrine of divine election compel us as a church to get the gospel to our neighbors and to our co-workers across the street, across the world. That's why we're here. Because we want to see God do what only he can do. That's our hope in life and death. It's not in our persuasive abilities. It's not in somebody's ability to somehow wise up and get a hold of themselves and turn around and come to Jesus on their own. We're dependent on a miracle. And a miracle is exactly what God designs to do. Because names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Praise God for that reality. That is where our hope lies. That's why we share. That's why we trust. That's how we can endure. Because when God writes your name in his book before the foundation of the world, nobody's erasing that. He does it. He did it before all this came into, into being. So here, it's not just the book of life. It is the book of life, it says, of the lamb who was slain. It's an interesting reference because in chapter 5, John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. At the end of chapter 12, the great dragon was thrown down and conquered. I love that picture. And what conquered him was, chapter 12, verse 11, the blood of the lamb. In other words, the lamb that was slain. But it's not just the blood of the lamb that conquered him. It's the word of their testimony. We just saw that in, in verse 8, that the saints who refuse to worship the beast have their names written in the book of the life of the lamb who is slain. What's the point? The church will suffer for not following the beast. And it will include arrests and executions. You see that in verse 10. If you're going to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive. If you're going to be slain with the sword, you're going to be slain with the sword. I mean, verse 10 is just giving us this dose of reality. But the lamb who is slain will triumph over the beast who's seeking to arrest you and slay you. He will triumph over the beast. He'll triumph over the satanic forces behind him. And again, going back to chapter 12, they will conquer him. The, the saints will conquer him by the blood of that lamb and by the word of their testimony. So how does the blood of the lamb conquer Satan? Well, the lamb is Jesus, and the blood that he shed is a reference to his death on the cross. Being typified as a lamb makes the point that he is the substitute who atones for sin on behalf of the sinner. He turns away God's wrath against the sinner, which is us. Because of our sin, we are under the wrath of God until we come to Jesus. And in so doing, he brings the sinner to God to be joined with his family forever. For that sinner, death no longer has the last word. That sinner, now made a saint, will be safe in the arms of Jesus for all eternity. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered the power of death, which is our greatest enemy. And that means that by, by conquering our greatest enemy, he is setting himself up as the Savior, the Lamb who was slain, the one, the, the solution, the answer, the one that we need. I mean, isn't death our greatest enemy? All the grief and tears and memorials that are being held for the mass shooting in Uvalde, just remind us that this great enemy, death, is yet real and still very powerful. This is why death hurts so much, and it should, because it is a real enemy. But apart from Jesus, there is no hope that death will ever die for good. It's just going to keep happening. Oh, but with Jesus, 
we see that Jesus conquered death. How did he conquer death? He rose from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He conquered death when he rose from the dead. And now the Christian has this assurance of this future resurrection when we will be united with Christ in heaven for all eternity. Death has no hold on us. Right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus, the lamb who was slain, has conquered death in the grave. Satan is defeated. He has the cosmic, mortal, fatal wound from which he will not recover this time. And Satan is defeated, it says, by the blood of that lamb and by the word of the testimony of their saints, of the saints. That's what verse 10 is all about. What was their testimony? Their testimony is that they love not their lives even unto death. So you could say that the double barrel shotgun that delivers the death blow to the enemy is the lamb that was slain and the testimony of the saints. That's why at the end of verse 10, there's a recognition that enduring to the end may require captivity. It may require martyrdom. But in keeping with broader themes of revelation, that is precisely how Satan is defeated. He's defeated by the saints, not loving their lives, even unto death. 1 John 5, 4 states it another way. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Remember verse 10, this is a call to faith and endurance. Have you ever thought of your faith as a thing that God is using to overcome the world? That's what 1 John says. What is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. God is using your faith to overcome the world and Satan. Your faith in Jesus. You keeping believing the gospel and believing that it really is the answer that we all need. You ongoingly believing the gospel really is that powerful? Do you believe that? That your faith overcomes the world? That's amazing. Satan's not overcome by Christians keeping silent or relegating their faith to just the church and the home. It's by living out our faith in real time and in real life in front of people who aren't already Christians especially. It's by the word of our testimony. It's by extending the hope of the gospel to the deceived world even if it costs us. It's, harder, hard, it's easier to say, harder to do, right? It's by loving the Savior and the hope that he brings more than we love our own lives. See, we don't wage war as the world does. Our fight's not against flesh and blood. We don't use force to advance the gospel or bring the kingdom or build the church. We do so by the word of our testimony and by us not loving ourselves more than we love others. I mean, after all, isn't that what neglect of evangelism is? We love ourselves more than we love others. I, f I feel that myself. That's, that's just very real. And we can live this out. We can live out this testimony both directly and indirectly. We do it by speaking to others directly. We do it by our work ethic, by the way we conduct business and raise our families and raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, by being devoted to the local church, by serving others. There's so many ways we can give of ourselves to other people and to the cause of good in the world more than we give ourselves to self-love and self-fulfillment. Verse 9 says, if anyone has ears, let him hear. I think that's the, the call to endure in verse 10 and to keep believing in Jesus even if you're taken captive, even if you're slain with the sword. All of that, though, we've got to recognize is rooted and grounded in the triumph of the Lamb over the beast, the very beast who's bringing the opposition and persecution. So he conquers the beast and the dragon by his death on the cross. He's continuing to conquer the beast and the dragon through your testimony. 
And in the same way that the Bible teaches us that this lamb was slain before the foundations of the world, let's remember your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And when you put those two truths together, not only is it the double barrel shotgun that delivers the mortal wound to Satan that from which he will never rise again, it also means that that, that gives us a faith and endurance. It means you have nothing to lose. The church may suffer, but the lamb will triumph in the end. That's what we see from this. So to wrap all of this up, and I, Stephen, I think we do have time to close in a song. Um, a time is coming, and I would say, and, and is now already here, when Satan is going to make war, to use the language of chapter 12, on the woman and her seed, which is the church and Jesus. He will position himself as God. How does the enemy do that? Well, he will define morality. He'll define sexuality. He'll define human identity. He'll get to decide who is a, considered a person and who is not considered a person and, and worthy of disposal. He'll have a, ho- a, host of, a whole other host of ways that he will play God. Of course, we see this happening. I hope you recognize that in just how I'm saying it. He'll fake miracles. He'll demand worship and allegiance. He'll kill anyone who stands in his way. Again, I don't know if this is a literal person or not, yet to emerge on the world scene. It certainly could be. Or if it's a description of the pattern of the course of this world. But the fact that we're being told this ahead of time, in the context of God's sovereign rule over evil and over the end times, is God preparing us for when it happens. God is preparing us. That's how the the verse ends in in verse 10. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. We can say that a time is coming, that time has come, and is, all, and is coming. <laughs> and that reality should cause us to examine our hearts now. See, we're not exempt from the influence of the beast who's deceiving the world. We may at times feel conquered by him. We may at times feel defeated as the people of God. Along with our brothers and sisters around the world, we too may be called to suffer at the hands of this beast But the ground of the faith and the endurance that we are called to is the fact that the Lamb has triumphed over Satan at the cross and will one day fully and finally express that triumph by throwing him into the lake of fire, which we'll see in chapter 19. And until that day, God calls us to endurance and faith, to face and overcome this growing deception. And that starts now. So that's, that's what the passage is about. God calls us to this faith and, and endurance for a growing deception. And that's rooted in the lamb who was slain and who has conquered Satan on the cross, who has written our names in his book of life, also before the foundation of the world. And by that, we find grounds to endure. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for this reality. We thank you for this truth and what you've called us to. But we, we so often get caught up and hung up on short-sighted things and what's right in front of us. But may we, as we look at those things, may we see the spiritual realities behind it and align our thinking and our hearts to reality as you see it. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.